0: Much for joining us tonight uh, for the third installment of Begin Again. We're going to be continuing with an introduction to Torah Sheba Alpe, uh, the oral tradition, and uh, I want to really jump right into it because the last time we met, which was two weeks ago, uh, we discussed. Um, I'm going to present our slideshow here. We discussed uh, this timeline, which I think people were taken by. We could go back a page just to show the main timeline over here, the timeline of Jewish history and heritage. I had uh, shared the link in the chat, and I will do so again tonight. Um, but there's a lot going on here, a lot of very fascinating material. What we're really going to be focusing on for purposes of these classes is going to be uh, this area right here where my cursor is, uh, and that's the period of time from the Knesset HaGidola all the way through to the Savoraim. So we're talking uh, roughly a period of time from, I'd say, you know, 200, 300 years before the Common Era, all the way leading into uh, leading into roughly, you know, the 7th, 8th centuries of the common era. And that's really where we're going to focus our efforts, uh, tonight especially. And uh, what we call the Talmud, just allowing some more people into the room, what we call the Talmud is really the product of these two areas over here, the Tanaim and Amoraim, including the Savoraim. And that's the period that we really, really are going to zero in on. But you can see what makes this timeline so nice. I don't know if you saw on the side, anybody that had a chance to look at it, But there was, oh, I forgot to, I was uh, told to record. Hold on one moment. Um, Supposed to record to the cloud. All right, fantastic. Um, If you notice over here, it shows where the Jewish population is. I just want to take a moment uh, to point out uh, the great miracle of our uh, day and age, uh, which is that the blue, which is the land of Israel, So you see over here in the times of the Bible and in the times of the first and second temples. So it makes up a sizable percentage of the world Jewish population residing in the land of Israel, certainly in the times of the Bible. And then there is nothing uh, for a period of millennia and more. And uh, we see in this little blip over here, uh, leading up to the year 2000 and the the current era, which has only grown, uh, by the way, uh, we see that the population of Jews that are living in the land of Israel is only growing. It happens to be uh, a fascinating halachic concept, um, concept of rov yoshveh There are indeed halachic concepts that change. For example, this year is a Shemitah year, a sabbatical year in Israel. It um, doesn't mean that all the rabbis get to go on vacation. It means that the, the land may not be worked in its ordinary sense. And uh, concepts like Shemitah, according to some opinions, might actually kick in in a much more profound way when the majority of the world's Jews dwell in the land of Israel. Um, and that's something to keep your eye on as halachic discourse changes uh, with, uh, with our extraordinary times and uh, certain halachot, certain rules that we thought were basically defunct once we had left the land of Israel, um, that those laws are becoming live again. That's uh, maybe a topic for another time, but let's zero in over here. And we have the prophets, the Tanaim and the Amoraim. Now, the, the Tanaim, as we mentioned, are the rabbis from the time of the Mishnah and the Tosefta. The Amoraim are roughly the rabbis from the time of the, of the Talmud, uh, and uh, I would say the Gemara. When I put Mishnah and Gemara together, we will call that the Talmud. And then afterwards, starting around the ninth century, uh, where world Jewry is concentrated in, uh, in Bavel, modern day Iraq, um, where it's concentrated there, we have the Tukufa, we have the period of time of Geonim. And the Geonim, you may have heard of certain famous Geonim, for example, uh, Rav Hai Goon, Rav Abamari Goon, Rav Sajah Gaon. Um, Geon was the name of Geon, Geon Beis Yaakov, who was a temporal title, but also the leader of the yeshiva at the time, the two major yeshivas of Sura and Pompadisa, uh, which exist in the times of the Amoraim, which we'll talk about tonight. And that leads into the period of time of the Rishonim. Rishonim, um, we might be familiar with Rashi. We might be familiar with Maimonides, Nachmanides. Those were reshonim. You could see that there's dates over here leading up to the expulsion uh, in 1492. And uh, although those dates, of course, are topics of robust debate in uh, academic Jewish history. And then finally, you have the period of the Aharonim uh, leading up to this very day. And this is uh, bread and butter of what we introduced to students when we introduced Torah Shebaal Peh. Um, we will maybe have uh, some time to discuss Rishonim, Geonim, and Ahronim later on. But as I mentioned, we're gonna focus in on Tanayim and Amorayim. We quoted last time from the commentary to Pirkei Avot of Rabbeinu Yonah Girondi, who is a Rishon, And he said that the Anshe Knesset HaGedola, the men of the Great Assembly, transmitted it to the men of their generation. It was 120 men. The Talmud tells us that in the men of the Great Assembly, there were prophets. We have the final prophets of Jewish history. Uh, There were indeed prophets in the men of the Great Assembly of the Anshe Knesset HaGedola. And they taught... Uh, Torah. They fixed many things, many aspects of Jewish life as we know it nowadays. For example, the rabbinic holidays of Hanukkah and Purim, uh, the, the liturgy, more or less, the Shemona Esrei for sure. L'Anshik uh, Nesagidola were the first real consolidation of halacha since the time of the Sanhedrin. Uh, The men, uh, the 70 men who were the biblical Sanhedrin uh, that, uh, of course, was destroyed and exiled with the destruction of the first temple. They transmitted it to the men of every generation. And that transmission was, again, from one sage to another. That's the chain of transmission that we talked about two weeks ago until all the sages of Israel gathered and a suggestion was given to write down the oral Torah. I want to pause right here. Um, we're not going to really have time to get to it tonight, but there is a crucial concept that's important to explain over here. Basically, the concept goes like this. We have a halacha. There's a rule that the Torah that is the oral tradition may not be written down. It's to remain an oral tradition. And I always say to my students, um, what do you gain when something can't be written down? And the answers seem to jump out. Students get this intuitively. I'll just give you one. When you hear Torah directly from me or any other teacher, what happens is is that it comes along with facial expressions, hand motions, right? You have big dialectic, little dialectic, making a real point, right? All these things that come together with the oral transmission of topics and knowledge. And so much is lost when it goes down into writing, I want to get a little bit granular here and tell you, and I'm going to put it into uh, into the chat afterwards. There is a landmark essay uh, written by uh, Professor Chaim Salavetchik. I'm going to spotlight myself uh, while I um, I'm going to spotlight myself while I'm off of our slides. Uh, there's a it's it it, it basically um, he talks about the mimetic tradition. It used to be that you would watch your mother or grandmother and uh, or your father. And as they fulfilled their roles of Jewish life, what did the Jewish kitchen look like? What did the Jewish home look like? And you grew up that way. And you knew essentially what Judaism was supposed to be. You knew essentially what the halachas are, what was kosher, what was not, what to say and what to not say. That's mimesis. Um, that That is the mimetic tradition as Professor Soloveitchik, this is Rabbi J.B. Soloveitchik's son, uh, Professor Dr. Chaim Soloveitchik. The mimetic tradition, he says, was ruptured. And this is part of the title, Rupture and Reconstruction. It's a landmark essay. It's really, really amazing. It was ruptured with the Holocaust, with World War I, and that tradition was lost. And what we saw in taking its place was written tradition. The books he had behind me, the Mishnah Brura, uh, the Aruch HaSholchan, Codes of Law, now, codes of law are very good because I could find everything in it. What I'm missing though, is the lived tradition, seeing other people do it. And that's something that goes again and again in Jewish history. People used to know what the Torah was telling us because they lived in that milieu, they understood that this was the way Jewish life was lived. With the destruction of the temple and with the loss of that tradition, that rupture, the breaking apart, there was a need to write down things which previously could not be written down. The transmitters of that Mesorah, of that tradition, were killed and exiled, and there was a very real potential for the loss of the tradition. So we believe that Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, who was the temporal and spiritual leader at the time, he said the following. He made the following teaching. He said, he quoted a verse. Eight It is a time to act for God. We have to abrogate the Torah. We have to violate the Torah in order to write it down and save it. And that was the beginning of the codification and the compilation of the Mishnah. That's what, and we'll go back to our slides over here, that's exactly what Rabbeinu Yonah is saying over here, that the suggestion was given to write down the oral Torah. The very fact that the Mishnah and that the Talmud exist in writing is itself a violation of tradition. It's not supposed to be written down. The way that it was supposed to happen was that students were supposed to receive it directly from the mouths of their teachers with everything that face-to-face teaching means and contains within it. And so they wrote down and sealed the Talmud and afterwards nothing was added to it and nothing was taken away from it. The Talmud became authoritative. And that generation also transmitted it to the Geonim and then to the Rishonim until our very day. So that leads us up to this point. So you have to ask, is it really possible to communicate things in an oral fashion, right? So much gets lost. I touched upon this uh, beautiful illustration painting from Norman Rockwell. Uh, it's really Lush and Hara in a nutshell, right? How things get sort of lost in the pipeline in that game of telephone if you ever played it on a bus or in school. And that is certainly a very real concern with the transmission of halakha, of details and important things. Like Joshua Safran Foer wrote in his book, Moonwalking with Einstein. Which I highly recommend It's a deep dive into memory uh, Into uh, the world of memory competitions Into concepts like memory chunking and We're not going to really be able to spend too much time on it But he writes something very powerful here uh, He's the brother of Jonathan Safran Foer uh, A little bit more famous Everything is Illuminated was his book uh, Or Extremely Loud And, uh, uh, and the close It was the book about the boy after 9-11 I forgot the name of it already Who, who We was uh, a movie with Tom Hanks Who we are and what we do is fundamentally a function of what we remember. And as Jews, we know that so much of our mitzvot are zeicher litziat mitzrayim. So much of what we do is to recall the Exodus, to recall our origins as a people, so much of what we are are from our recipes in the home, to the way that we light the Hanukkah candles, to the way that we speak, to the words that we use when we talk, those Yiddishisms that creep in, or maybe it's a, uh, maybe if you come from uh, from Mizrahi backgrounds, extremely loud and incredibly close. Thank you to the comments. Um, All of these things are what we remember. That memory is a big name for tradition, what we pass over. Rabbi Dr. Yaakov Elman uh, writes something extraordinary. This isn't just a traditional viewpoint, but this is actually something that has been considered in the academic study of Jewish history and of Talmud. Rabbi Dr. Elman, Zechron Levrach, a great man, uh, was a classically trained trained Talmudic scholar, but also uh, one of the doyens of the field of academic Uh, Talmud scholarship, he writes the following in this phenomenal article, Orality and the Redaction of the Babylonian Talmud. I'm just going to read a little bit from it. He says, classic rabbinic literature of the third and fourth centuries, both in its Palestinian and Babylonian exemplars, and we'll talk about what these terms mean in a moment tonight, presents us with the elements of theology of oral transmission that reflected, justified, and shaped the oral transmission of rabbinic learning. Meaning that there was a culture that allowed this to happen, and we founded an example in the Talmud Yerushalmi in Bavli. Despite the plethora of data indicating the privileged position of oral transmission, he says people didn't want to accept, in the academy, they didn't want to accept the fact that all of this material could really be transmitted in an oral way. I mean, really? All 2,711 folio pages Right. And there's alternatives. Maybe there's scribes that could write it down on papyri, which would have been lost, or that could put it down on velum or something, something that would have been arduous and painstaking. But really, people transmitted this orally. And he says in the following remarks, I shall attempt to marshal a to point to the overwhelming likelihood that this legal material, two thirds of all of this, Was orally transmitted, including what he calls a dialectical redaction layer, which we're going to talk about later. But just think about that for a second. Of the 2,711 folio pages that make up the Talmud Bavli, what we have is the written record of things that were transmitted orally up to that point, a pristine or as pristine as possible, oral tradition that we believe harks back directly to Sinai that was given along with the Torah. That is, uh, to me, one of the most beautiful things, one of the most powerful sources of Emunas Chachamim, faith in rabbis, faith in the oral tradition, and that is is, uh, something that I think lies at the very core of what we're trying to talk about tonight. I'm gonna try and tell you a story, Um, and this is one of the most poignant, one of the most painful stories that appears in the entire Talmud. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I'm sharing the screen with you. We could go back to it in a moment. It comes from the Gemara Imenachot uh, Davchavtet Amidbet. Now take a look at these letters for a second. This is what we call Ketav Ashurit. Ketav Ashurit is the script that is used, the Syrian script. It is used in the Sefer Torah and in Mizuzot. And you'll see that there are crowns on top of the letter, what we call Tagin. A Tag is the Aramaic word for, for crowns. So these are the tagin and the Sefer Torah. When we write a Torah scroll, it has these crowns on top of the letters. And uh, I could read it to you, but I'd be much happier uh, telling you the story. Here's how the story goes. When Moshe Rabbeinu went up to Shamayim, he saw that God. He was, Moses was getting ready to receive the Torah. And he saw that God was fixing crowns to the Torah letters, that God was writing the Sefer Torah, and Moshe Rabbeinu said to God, Baruch Hu, Yadcha. Why are you doing this? Basically, who's who's making you do such a thing?" And Akadosh Baruch Hu, God, in dialogue with Moses, said that in many centuries hence, there's going to be a great scholar by the name of Rabbi Akiva. And Rabbi Akiva is going to be Doresh Tile Tilim Shall Halachos. He is going to expound mounds and mounds, heaps and heaps of halachot, of laws, from the very tagin, from the crowns on top of these otiot. And Moshe Rabbeinu Moses responds to God and says, you must show him to me. Who is this individual? Who, who must be so great? I can't even understand. And God says, turn around. And almost like a Doctor Who episode, Lahavdil, so Moshe turns around and he's transported many centuries hence, and he finds himself in the Beit Midrash of Rabbi Akiva, and he's sitting in the back row. What a poignant image. The students used to sit in concentric circles, sitting at the feet of their rabbi and Moshe Rabenu himself. Moses himself is sitting in the back row of Rabbi Akiva's shir. And Moshe hears Rabbi Akiva expounding upon a halacha and he doesn't understand a word that is going on. He can't understand what's happening. dato, Moshe Rabbeinu gets weakened of spirit and he can't understand. He says to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, he turns to God, he says, why would you give the Torah through me? Give the Torah through him. I can't understand what's going on in his sheer. I can't understand what's going on. I don't know what he's saying in his class. God says turn around again and Rabbi Akiva is asked by one of the students, what is the source of that halacha, Rabbi Akiva? What is the source of that law that you just expounded upon? Rabbi Akiva says it's a halacha l'mo miSinai." sinai. It's a halacha, it's a law that's transmitted by Moses directly from Mount Sinai. A Special category of oral tradition, like we mentioned, like the color of tefillin or like the fact that a lul of an esrog, uh, that an esrog uh, uh, creates hadar, that it's, it means the citron and nothing else and not a grapefruit. A special category of direct, direct transmitted that nobody has any question or qualm about the identity or about the particulars of that specific halacha. Moshe Rabbeinu is dumbfounded by this, but apparently assuaged by the fact that the link between Sinai and this moment many centuries hence is, is totally put together. So Moshe Rabbeinu then says to God, he says, this, in, this great individual, HaRasein Yitzcharo, he says, I want you to tell me his great reward. What's the reward of a person who studies Torah like this? So Hashem turns, he says, turn around and Moshe Rabbeinu finds Rabbi Akiva. Moshe Rabbeinu finds Rabbi Akiva, who of course dies a martyr's death, and he sews him, it's grotesque, it's, it's a macabre scene, he finds that Rabbi Akiva's flesh is on top of his being weighed in heaps in the marketplace of Rome. And Moshe Rabbeinu, the continuation of the story, and I always read this, I used to read this in Lincoln Square, on, on Tisha B'av, when we would talk about the Asara Harugay Malchus. I can't get over this story. So Moshe Rabbeinu says to he says, what is, what, is, what is going on here? How could this be? This is Torah and this is reward. And HaKash Baruch Hu's response to Moshe is that, this is the Gzairach. This is what happened. This came from behind the divine curtain. You can't understand what's going on over here. You can't know. I always quote when I say this story, something that I heard from a refined Waxman Shlita who quoted the story, quote from Rabbi Shlomo Kluger, a great acheron. Shlomo Kluger says that the language in one recension of this story, which appears in the Midrashim, uh, or appears in the piyut that we say on Yom Kippur is, is God says, "One more word, Moses. Vani hofi chesalolim tohu, vavohu. Another word from you. I'm going to change this world back to primordial chaos." Rishlom Kluger says, "What's Hashem's answer?" He says, "Hashem is telling Moshe that I could actually show you the answer to why it is that Rabbi Akiva suffers so, despite all of his talmud Torah. But to get you that answer would mean unraveling every thread." From creation up until this very point, it would, lead back, it would lead us back to the very moment that God said, Bereshit, that God created the world. I always loved that because it speaks to the inscrutability of such a thing, to the fact that it's such an uh, unbelievably difficult thing to even comprehend, but it gives it contour. So the reason I'm sharing this story with you tonight, and we'll go back to the screen, is because this story, besides being tragic and containing uh, theology of suffering as well, implies a link implies and gives lie amongst all the other things in the story to the connection, to the linkage between Har Sinai and the Torah Shepal that goes through many generations, linking perhaps one of the greatest figures of the oral tradition, Rabbi Akiva, who had more Talmud and more students than anyone else, whose students even after the great plague of the twenty four thousand pairs of his students that we mourn on the Spirata Omer, that his students afterwards were those that saved and perpetuated the Torah tradition, and there's many questions that we could focus on, and maybe maybe there shouldn't be any more Tishavos, maybe. At some future juncture, we could come back and we could spend the full hour or more on this story, but I wanted to use this story as an illustration, a graphic illustration, uh, a very pointed illustration of the linkage of the Torah shebichtav, the written tradition and the oral tradition, how we jump over many generations. There's one other story about the theology of oral tradition that I want to share with you before we get back into some more technical matters, and this might be more famous, uh, this is perhaps the most famous Talmudic story. I, I, I would aver that this is the most famous Talmudic story. Uh, beautiful uh, image over here by the artist Carl Schleicher from 1860 of Rabbis in Debate. More or less... Kind of looks the same nowadays but you know you have to add uh, women into the picture you have to add uh you know jews of all different kinds uh who look different than the polish jew this is uh you know you would have to update the image but the the tnuchot, the motions of the hands and and the, and the style and characteristic of the debate are, are all the same i don't except i don't know why there's a safer on the floor over here That safer we need to be picked up and kissed um, but this is uh i love this image for for how it evokes that now we're going to do this story even quicker, and this story is also again worthy of its own discussion. When I did a um, when I taught at uh, when I taught at SAR High School, uh, one of the things that Rabbi Hartstark and I worked on when we were there was uh, well, we were teaching uh, the the tenth graders Bikyut, and we talked about uh, an Agadah curriculum. Agadah is uh, usually people like to bifurcate the Talmud into two. Sections. The first section is the halachic parts of the Talmud, right? That's, uh, quote-unquote, the dry part. I don't believe that to be true for a minute. There's nothing dry about it. And then there's the agadah. The agadah is the stories, the culture, the jokes, the, uh, the legends. All of those things come into it, and it's a very rich, uh, a very rich uh, material as well. In fact, if I could recommend one safer um, Professor Jeff Rubenstein of NYU uh, wrote a very accessible book called The Land of Truth, Talmudic Tales' Timeless Teachings it is a wonderful introduction uh, to Agada. There's another book by Rabbi Yitzchak Blau, I think is his name, called uh, uh, Fine Wine. And oof, I, I shouldn't mention the name if I don't know it. Yitzchak Blau and Agadah, there's many great books. I, I could recommend Professor Rubenstein's. I think it's some amazing readings in here. But uh, Agada is seen as the more flowery, the, the story's a little bit less dry, a little bit more animated. And the truth, of course, is that there's really no such bifurcation, that they both collapse into each other uh, that as Professor, uh, Professor Robert Cover, uh, Cover used to say, uh, he would say that, uh, that, that law is narrative and narrative is law. Uh, that when a, an attorney gets up before a judge, uh, so they'll start to give the story, right? They don't just give the dry facts. Let, Your Honor, let me tell you a story. Uh, there was a young man and, and, and that develops into a legal defense. You marshal narrative and law uh, usually come together. Be that as it may, what we did at SAR is we introduced Agada is a topic to be studied seriously uh, in a Jewish uh, in Jewish school it's something that uh, we're bringing to bicultural as well i think it's really important for what it communicates uh, about Talmud about Gemara and about Judaism in, to- in toto this is the first story uh, that we always teach the story is one second i just uh I just want to share my screen with you to show you where it comes from. It's from Bava 59b. And the story is called the story of the Tanr Shalachnai. Again, I see that I'm already going to run out of time this evening. The Tanr Shalachnai is the following story. Um, there was a discussion about a very arcane uh, topic about a particular doubled oven and whether or not the ritual purity uh, would be transmitted from one side to another in such a way that the whole oven would not be able to be used. Or... Is it not mispashit Does the ritual impurity not spread throughout both of those ovens? That's, that's the question. And there's discussion in the Beit Midrash that is raging on that very day. And the Gemara opens up and says, On that day, by Yomahu, Rabbi Eliezer, who, by the way, was from the school of Beit Shammai, he was a, he was a Rabbi Lazar Shamutehu. who Rabbi Lazar was from a disciple of the house of Shammai, also a very important topic for the development of Torah Beit Hill and Beit Shammai, there's so much to learn. Well, um, not, enough, uh, not enough time to have all these shirim. But Rabbi Elezer offered all the reasons uh, to support his opinion. And Rabbi Elezer gets frustrated with the discourse. Rabbi Elezer, uh, fresh and fresh wine, uh, fresh vintage and fresh fruits and vintage wine by, uh, by Yitzchak Blau, thank you so much. That's exactly the title of the book. Uh, it's by one of the Blaus. Uh, anyway, Rabbi Elezer says, He's frustrated because he's offering all these logical answers. He's telling everybody, "This is why you should agree with me. You know, concede." And Rabbi Yeshua, who by the way comes from the house of Hillel and represents the majority in the Beit Midrash on that day, Rabbi Yeshua is just not accepting it. And you know, I don't. I know that this is very hard to imagine, but it's two Jewish people with very strong opinions, and they're not really willing to budge. Such a thing uh, happens every once in a while. And Rabbi Lazarus is getting frustrated and Rabbi Luzer basically says, look, how about this? If I'm right, let the carob tree outside uproot itself like Lord of the Rings style and it's gonna walk, that carob tree is gonna walk and it's gonna prove my point. And sure enough, the carob tree picks itself up, walks 100 amot and plants itself somewhere else. Rabbi Yeshua and the other rabbis in the Beit Midrash are nonplussed, they're not impressed, they say, Nope. Rebbe says, okay, what about if the river flowing outside goes and flows upstream? Sure enough, river floats upstream. Up still not impressed. Lezer, you can imagine Rebbe Lezer getting a little bit more frustrated at this point. Rebbe Lezer says, okay, the walls of the Beit Midrash are going to collapse and the walls start to collapse and Rabbi Yoshua, basically out of his honor, the walls don't fully go down. So the walls are, you know, sort of this way and it says they don't fall because of the honor of Rabbi Yeshua, but they don't rise up because of the honor of Rabbi Eliezer. Finally, Rabbi Eliezer has had enough and Rabbi Eliezer says, if the halacha is like me, baskol kol yohiach. A bas kol is a voice, a heavenly voice emanating from heaven. Uh, almost like a psychedelic experience where everybody would hear this voice emanating from heaven. And sure enough, a voice came out from heaven and says, the halacha is like Rabbi Eliezer. So what happens next? Rabbi Yeshua is... Not just not impressed, but he has, he has, he says, He says, we do not pay attention to Baskol, the halok siv lo b'shamayim hi. The Torah is no longer in the heavens. The Torah was given to us at Sinai. It is to us to interpret the written Torah, and we do not listen to a bat kol, even if, even if a heavenly voice, even if the angels themselves are deciding like Eliezer, we know that the Torah told us that the law is majority rules. We are going to follow the halacha like us, and the halacha was like us. Many people use the second, the koda to this Gemara, the many years, Years later, one of the rabbis was able to ask Elijah the prophet what God was doing on that day. He says, God was looking at the uh, goings on in, the, in this Beit Midrash, and God laughed and said, Nitschuni Banai, nitzchuni Banai. A paradoxical way God says, My children have have vanquished me. My children have vanquished me. Now, what that means and how we could potentially use that uh, is, again, a whole separate shear. But the reason I share this with you is because it speaks to another aspect of the theology of the oral traditions that the Torah Shebech is the divine part. It's the psukim. It's the fixed Torah of 24 books of the Tanakh. And we put all of that through the machine, as I tell my students, the machine of rabbinic discourse and drasha, and out comes the products of Torah Shabbat, the oral tradition expanding and expanding and expanding in every generation. Let's proceed. So, what is? I told you we would get a little bit more technical here. What is the structure of Torah Shabbat? Let's give in the next five minutes the full contours of the Torah Peh. Now, let's take a look at this diagram over here. This is not my diagram. I wish I could credit it. Um, I took it from a source sheet I used in school about 10 years ago. I wish I could credit it. It's not, uh, it's not for lack of trying. It says here that we have the Torah. This is the Torah Shebichtav, the Torah pet, the written Torah, the oral tradition. The oral tradition in its most basic form, so it splits into what we call Shishas Darim, Shas, Shin samach. Now, I'm going to go ahead and, um, and share. I'm going I'm to try, try and do this. Hold on one second. So we have, uh, let me get my pen. Here we go. So we have Shas. This over here, whoops. All right, I'm not going to even try and write it. Shas are the Shishastarim, the six orders of the Mishnah. There's zraim, which deals with the laws of agricultural laws, the laws of the land of of Israel. Seder Moed, that's the holidays. Seder Nashim, laws involving marriage, and divorce and identity, Seder nizikin torts and damages, Seder Kadsim, the order of holies as it's translated, which is sacrifices, both vegetable and animal and the work done in the temple. And finally, Seder taharot, uh, purities, which deals with the laws of ritual purity and impurity, which was an all-encompassing topic during the times of the temple, something that is unfortunately lost to us today, like much of Seder Kadsim as well. These are all of the Mishnayot. This is all in the Mishnah. Now, there are also Talmudic tractates on these as well, which are an analysis and in a, a recension of analysis on those Mishnayot. For example, in the Talmud Bavli, there is only a Masechet Brachot in Seder Zeraim. There is no Peah. There's no Masechet Demai. There's no Masechet Kalayim. There's no Masechet Shvit. All of this does not exist in the Babylonian Talmud. When you look at Seder Tarot, for example, so there's only one part of Seder taharot that's mesachet Nida, the final tractate in the Talmud that exists in both Talmuds. Seder Kadshem, for example, does not exist in the uh, Talmud Yerushalmi and the Jerusalem Talmud. It doesn't exist. There is none. However, I, I should say that in the, uh, in the late 1800s, um, there was a great discovery that was announced. You could, uh, if you just Google the Yerushalmi forgery, um, you can learn more about this. We won't have time to really flesh it out, but it is a fascinating chapter in Jewish history that a certain individual came and said that he discovered the Yerushalmi on Kudshim which was presumed to have either never existed or to have been long lost. And uh, what happened was that it was such a good forgery that there were actually very many rabbis that were taken in by it. And people even wrote commentaries on it. I saw it went up on Kerem auctions a few years ago. Uh, there was a Talmud Yerushalmi, a copy of it, that had the glosses of a great rabbi studying it as if this was the 2,000-year-old manuscript that came from the land of Israel. There is no Talmud Yerushalmi to us nowadays, but that forgery and uh, the fallout from that forgery once it was exposed uh, is a very fascinating chapter in the history of forgery and censorship in, the Jewish, uh, in Jewish bibliography. Satan um, is Ezekiel, for example, all of this, except for Pirkei Avot, all of this has a Gemara. There's a Mishnah Kama, and there's a Gemara Kama, And that is the totality of what we would call the Talmud. Now, that is not all of Torah Shabbat. Peh. There's other aspects of Torah Shabbat. Peh. For example, we have two different types of Midrash. Midrash can date from the time of the Mishnah all the way to pseudo-Midrashim, uh, things that call themselves or are structured like Midrashic literature that date from much, much later from the time period of the Rishonim or the Geonim, like Yalkut Shimoni, uh, which is structured like a Midrash, or Yalkut Reuveni. However, there are Midrashim that are very, very early, from just around the time of the Midrash, for example, Mechilta de the Rabbi Yishmael, which is a corpus of halachas that are collected from the Beit Midrash of Rabbi Yishmael, and on uh, that appears on the book of Exodus. There's the Sifra, what's called Torah at which is a, an expansive collection of laws, some of them included in the Talmud, some not, uh, that are on Leviticus and Sefer Vayikra. The Sifri is a Halachic Midrash on Sefer Bamidbar, on Numbers. And then we have the minor tractates. Some, again, come from very early, and some from very, very late, from the Geonic period. Those minor tractates are more like Talmudic Essays, Essay forms of the Talmud, uh, Avot de Rabbi Natan, which is a 41-chapter expansion of Pirkei Avot, uh, which is only six chapters, or seven. And then there's Mesechat Sofrim, which is the laws of writing a Sefer Torah, which is just a few folios long. Then we might be familiar with Agadik Midrash. Agadik Midrash, you may have heard of the Midrashim in Bereshit Rabbah, Tanchuma, Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer, Psiktasher Shim Rabbah. And these are, again, uh, the split between Halacha and Agadah. And, uh, and again, it spans, uh, spans roughly a period of time of, of, of 900 years from the earliest ones to the latest ones like Shir Hashir and Rabbahs much, much later. At the same time in the Mishnah, there's one other crucial part of rabbinic literature that you should know about. At the same time is the Tosefta. The Tosefta, we'll just do very quickly, the Tosefta is a compilation of Jewish law from the time of the Mishnah, compiled not by Rabbi Yehuda, but by Rabbi Chia. That's about... Year 189 of the Common Era. It closely corresponds to the Mishnah. I like to tell my students that anything you find in the Mishnah, you will find in the Tosefta. However, things that you find in the Tosefta, you will not find in the Mishnah. The Tosefta is often quoted by the Gemara, and there's times that it agrees almost verbatim with the Mishnah. At other times, there's significant differences. For example, uh, it sometimes contradicts the Mishnah's ruling of Jewish law. We've, we follow the Mishnah in general, or in attributing to whom it is stated. There are Precious few commentaries on the Tosefta. One of the most famous is the Tosefta Kifshuta, written by Professor Rabbi Shaol Lieberman of the Jewish Theological Seminary, uh, cousin of the Chazen Ish. Another one is uh, the uh, Chazde David commentary on the Tosefta. And then there's Chazon. I think it's Chazon Yecheskel written by Rav Chatzka Levenstein, which is another, uh, another modern commentary. It was more of a modern uh, thing to comment on the Tosefta, to include that as part of the study of Talmud. Um, but the Tosefta is something, a field of study that is only growing. Let's move on a little bit. What about geographically? I know that we're trying to cover massive amounts of material, but we're about to go on, on break, and I'm itching to get into uh, other topics as well. Um, And I don't want to be too technical, but let's take a look just at at what the world looked like. And we'll explain what I kept on saying, the Talmud Yerushalmi and the Talmud Bavli. There are indeed two Talmuds. The Talmud Yerushalmi, what in academia is called the Palestinian Talmud, it's not a political term. um, Yerushalmi is something of a misnomer. Because in the time of the second and third centuries of the common era, there was precious few Jews living in Jerusalem proper. The majority of the Jewish community was really focused in the Galilee and in the north of Israel. Cities like Lod, Tzipori, Tiberia, uh, Kesaria, very beautiful place. Those were the areas and of course you could go to places like, uh, what's that town in the north of Israel? It's like a tourist place that people go to. Um, if you could be helpful in the comments to me, it's the Talmudic town. You could go and you could see they have everything arranged. From time Katsrin, I want to say there's a t- there are towns uh, that are that are basically mentioned in the Talmud. If you've ever been, uh, if you ever done the Arbel hike, one of my favorite hikes in Israel. Um, so the Arbel, that area is mentioned in the Mishnah. You might be familiar with the name Nitai uh, HaArbeli, who appears very very early on. And the uh, Judith is telling me that Katsrin might be it, so I'm just going to stop at Katsrin, and I hope that that's the right one, uh, the Talmudic town. But a lot of these locations that we see uh, in the Talmud and in the Mishnah are in the north of Israel. They called it the Yerushalmi out of deference, of course, and out of the historic Jewish love and centering of Yerushalayim, uh, of everything. There was, of course, a small Jewish community uh, that grew later on in Alexandria, which had one of the largest synagogues in the world at the time. That was in uh, Mitzrayim. They say that the synagogue in Alexandria, the Gemara tells us in Mesech Megillah, that the synagogue was so large that uh, it was cool, actually. People used to sit by trade. Um, the, the trade, uh, so if you were a carpenter, you sat with the carpenters. If you were... I don't know, if you were in finance, you sit with the financiers. You uh, you know, everybody sat with their trade and they would raise flags uh, to let people know when it was time to answer and to respond in prayer. Uh, that's Alexandra. It becomes very, very important in the Talmud. However, the majority of Jewish life was concentrated in the north. They were developing an analysis of the Mishnah that went on for about 200 years, and the recension of that is what we call the Talmud Yerushalmi. The more technical term that we should use is Talmudah de Eretz Yisrael. The Talmud of the land of Israel, and, uh, except Yerushalmi is, uh, is, is, is what is also works as a colloquialism. Uh, all of Zerayim was covered, as we mentioned. There's no Kadshim known to us. The Yerushalmi is notoriously fragmentary and difficult to read, even for experienced scholars. The Yerushalmi basically closes in the 4th century and then lacks... The many hundreds of years of redaction, of compilation, of editing, quote-unquote, that is done uh, on the Bavli. And therefore, the Yerushalmi is basically a closed book uh, to most people in modern times and... I believe it was the Ger-Rebi, the Imre Emes, that encouraged the Dafyomi in Yerushalmi as well. I could be mistaken on that. Uh, nowadays, in the land of Israel, there is much more study of Yerushalmi going on uh, than ever before. There is an art scroll of Yerushalmi. they are green covers. Um, and uh, the traditional reason for why it's so fragmentary and difficult to read is because the t- redactors of the Jerusalem Talmud had to finish the work abruptly. Uh, eventually, Jewish life was... Uh, completely removed from the land of Israel, except for a few remnants of communities that were the unbroken chain of Jewish living there. But most Jewish life started to concentrate itself in Bavel. Uh, I love this map. Uh, this map comes from a, a book that was published by the Talmud Torah of Mitzvah Riho, called Todota Amoraim. This is a handwritten map. So Bavel, which is modern-day Iraq, here's the Nahar Prat, the Euphrates River. And the Euphrates River, so you could see the three main yeshivot, the three main yeshivot, you have Pimpaditsa, uh you have Surah, and you have Neherda. Uh, so these are the three main yeshivot. You have Mechoza, uh, Rav, uh, who comes up on almost every page of the Talmud. Rav was the Mara de Atra of Mechoza, which was the biggest Jewish city in Bavel. And Jewish life here flourishes for many centuries and develops over the course of three uh, three or more centuries of Mishnah analysis, the Talmud Bavli, the Babylonian Talmud as we know it. The Talmud, the Talmud Bavli, exists for only 37 out of 63 tractates of the Mishnah. It is considered authoritative and studied far more. If the Bavli and the Yerushalmi contradict each other, we follow the Bavli. Uh, According to some authorities, if the Yerushalmi says something and there is no contradiction in the Bavli or the Bavli is silent about it, we may follow the Yerushalmi, but the Babylonian Talmud develops right around here. Uh, Professor David Weiss Halivni a Holocaust survivor, one of the Doyens, the academic study of Talmud for many, many years, uh, at uh, decades really, at uh, Columbia University, uh, says the reason the Bavli is easier to read, I know that that's a tall order, it's hard for me to read, uh, it's hard for many people to read, but the reason that it flows better is because there's what he's called a redactive layer, a second recension, as we call it, where the material is processed for another uh, 200 years, by what's called the stam, the Stamaitic layer, and you can imagine, like an archaeologist takes apart strata. One, this is a couple centuries, and the layer underneath it is another time period. And the layer that's every page of the Talmud, like we talked about last in two, in two weeks ago, in that shear, and that Stamaitic layer arranged the Talmud, organized it into the book, quote unquote, that we know nowadays. So this is the geography of the Talmud. We saw the uh, we saw the we saw the map. Uh, we saw the structure of it, and I have about four more minutes, so I beg your indulgence uh, to have a little bit of fun over here, um, and this is, uh, this is some really cool stuff. So, maybe I'll, I'll show you a quick video over here. Uh, of course, there's a this YouTube is ad. I'm going to skip this Slash right gym. now. The guest bedroom. Here we go. All right. This is Sotheby's. Seven million nine hundred. $7,900,000. Eight? Is a just $8, look at the people here eight million one hundred thousand dollars eight million one hundred thousand true at eight million one hundred thousand dollars it's right up here at eight million one hundred thousand dollars so for eight million one hundred thousand dollars so this is the sale of this Talmud. And this Talmud is, of course, uh, it's called the Westminster Talmud. Uh, it was sold at Sotheby's. I had the opportunity to view it at Sotheby's uh, with my sheer, uh when it was being, uh, when it was on view there on uh, 70th Street. Where is Sotheby's? It's right across from Sloan, right? It's uh, 70th and, uh, I'm just asking my wife uh, who worked across the street. Uh, it's uh, right 70th and York in the city. This is the Westminster Talmud. It is the first Complete set of Talmud printed by a non Jew, by Daniel Bomberg in Venice in 1520 to 23. It is considered, you could see inside, one of the finest examples of Jewish printing, uh, although it is certainly not the oldest rabbinic text. The oldest rabbinic text would be this one. This one is a rabbinic text preserved in stone. And this is uh, a <laughs> rabbinic text preserved in stone. You could see it's on Pesi Pas, it's a uh, mosaic. And uh, just uh, this, uh, this is from five hundreds. This is really from before the Talmud is even completely sealed and it appears at Rehov, um, which is near Beit She'an. Maybe some of you have seen this. Again, a reconstruction. It is, uh, it is a written form of a response uh, to the farmers that were in Beit She'an, which was a farming and agrarian community, about uh, the laws of Trumot and Ma'asrot. They were concerned whether or not they were actually part of Israel proper or not. Uh, Maybe that's the oldest rabbinic text. I mean, I guess it's a mosaic, so it can't really count. What about this one? Maybe this is the most famous rabbinic text. This is from the Berlin Library. This is the Munich Manuscript of the Talmud. Yes, indeed, this is a Talmud. Uh, This dates from 1342, from the early 14th century, mid-14th century. Uh, You could even make it out. I always like to show my students, you are reading a text that is older, many, many years older than the country you live in. So this is from Mesechet Brachot. This is the very first page of Shas. It doesn't look anything like a Shas. Uh, this is not a printed book. This is before the invention of the printing press. Uh, this is handwritten manuscript. So maybe that's the earliest rabbinic text. I don't know. It's a manuscript. Or maybe what about this one? Maybe this is the oldest rabbinic text. This is the Sensino uh, Talmud Brachot, you could see uh, how beautiful it is. Let's get a higher resolution. Oops, page not found. Let's go back. At least uh, maybe I could open the image in a new tab and we could see it like that. It doesn't really help that much, but you could see that uh, this is one of the earliest printings from the Cincino family. We even have a Cincino, uh family nowadays. Um, so we know that the printing of the Talmud is something quite uh, old. Um, somebody writes in the chat, so you ever get up to Boston, the Brandeis Arcades have copies of the Talmud that date, to, that date back to Rashi and Rashi's personal copies of the Talmud. Rashi's copies, I mean, it's amazing. Uh, university libraries have some treasures. Uh, Rashi's, uh, Rashi's comments come before his grandchildren, uh, the toast vote, the Bali toast vote, and indeed the Sincino family. Um, I saw an article from Professor Freim Canterfogel of YU, uh, who's one of the great scholars of the Tosafists, who wrote that the Sassino family also kind of chose uh, Tosafists that were their relatives sometimes uh, to publish in their particular Talmuds. We are about to run out of time. I'm way over time. I don't want to speak too much longer. Maybe we're going to have to do one more installment because I have uh, I have some more fun material to share with everybody, uh, technical and uh, non-technical. Um, but we'll